Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Tech Talk. As always, I'm Joey Klein, your host. And as always, we have three fantastic uh, technology companies here, Atlanta Board and Bread, to talk to us about why they're awesome. Uh, first, we're going to talk to Jeff Wilson, CEO of 352. Hey, Joey. Nice to be here. Jeff, good to have you. Uh, then we're going to go uh, talk to Aman Bardouage, uh, president of Liberty Defense. Hello, Joey. Good to be here. Great. And finally, Robbie Golry, chief marketing officer of ProLiant. Hey, Joey. How are you? Go what? Braves, by the way. <laughs> but you're not wearing your gear. I know, I know. That'll be later this afternoon. Yeah. Don't worry. Okay, you're, you're you're wearing it in spirit. Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's get right into it. So, Jeff Wilson, CEO and founder of Three Five Two, the the genesis of the name for for everyone out there who hasn't memorized their uh, area codes. Three Five Two is the area code for Gainesville, Florida. Why is that significant? Uh, go Gators. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make me popular up here, but I started the show or I started the company in Gainesville, Florida, when I was a student at the University of Florida. So we're 22 years old now, 22 years ago. Uh, and so it seemed like the thing to do to name the company after the area code as kind of the genesis of where we started. Yeah, I didn't, didn't, didn't think that might be limiting at a certain point. You might uh, <laughs> you know, grow out of Gainesville and become bigger, right? Uh, I, I like it because uh, most people don't you know, most people in Georgia don't instantly associate it with the Florida area codes. They're yeah. not sure what it is, so it always invites conversation. Although I appreciate the conversation once the contract is signed, because most, more often than not, our clients are Georgia fans, uh, you know, or fans of some other <laughs> SEC team. So they uh, they they don't appreciate the name. So we got to get the contract signed before we talk about it. I like that. You know what? Most people probably assume that it's some like uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, in, in, interesting math equation that they don't really, uh, you know, understand. And so why ask about there it? There you go. Well, three plus five plus two is a perfect 10. So oh. that's my, that's my. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had go. a long time to come up with that one. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, so we understand why you are named the way that you are named. What do you guys do? Yeah. So we're an innovation and growth firm. So we work with companies all over Atlanta on innovation strategy. Uh, a lot of, a lot of new product development work. We help them figure out what new revenue streams are, new product ideas are, how to get new things off the ground. And then we also have a development group that can actually build new products, get them into the marketplace and a growth marketing group that can help them scale in the marketplace. So the companies that you work with, and if you go on 352's website, they have some very premier brand name companies that they work with, Fortune 1000s that we've all heard of. Um, these groups all have marketing departments, yep. okay? But what you do is different than what that marketing department would generally have expertise in. 100%. So for example, one of our big clients right now is Nationwide Insurance. Nationwide has a several hundred person marketing team. They are excellent brand marketers. They do a great job of maintaining Nationwide's brand and doing, you know, wonderful TV commercials with Peyton Manning and, you know, that type of thing. But that is a completely different style of marketing than marketing a brand new product that's launching to market for the first time. We bring a Silicon Valley edge to marketing. We use growth marketing techniques uh, in order to find early stage traction for new products that are launching into the marketplace. A very different type of marketing. Okay, so let's let's rewind a little bit before we get into the here and now. So you started this in college, which really means that this has been your entire professional career. It has been. Okay. Um, now, I have also done 
nine. This is I, I've done eight other businesses uh, on the side. I'm yeah. a serial entrepreneur, so I've started a lot of other companies. Uh, but but yes, from a day to day perspective, this is I have not had a boss. If that's right. you know a good way of putting it. Well, and that's that is a good thing, right? For 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 those of us who realize that we don't want a boss, it's nice to know that early on. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, I think the flip side of it is that, uh, since I haven't had corporate experience, professional experience outside of my own companies, that some, I probably have made some mistakes along the way that, uh, had I had exposure to, you know, uh, other environments, maybe I would have been a little more savvy, but I don't know. Um, but it's, it's the way that I have always wanted to do things. Well, probably good self-reflection, but you know, we all make mistakes. We all learn from them and you know, it's, it's what we do with them that counts. But I, I want to get into the psyche of what, um, what got you interested in this style of business to start it while you're still in college. Yeah. Um, so I actually did some entrepreneurial, uh, stuff in middle and high school, uh, flipping baseball cards, uh, CD-ROM, uh, you know, selling CD-ROMs when they came out. Uh, and I, I, actually started a little computer store uh, my senior year of high school. Got to college, couldn't do that anymore because obviously went to a different city and that type of thing. Freshman year, didn't didn't do anything business-wise, just enjoy being in college. But sophomore year, I kind of got the entrepreneurial itch again. And so I was thinking like, what, what, what service could I provide? What could I do that I could do around my class schedule that I could do from my fraternity house room? And uh, I zeroed in on a uh, website creation, website development, because I knew how to do it. It was uh, the it was the late '90s. Businesses were getting online for the very first time. There were not a lot of people who knew how to do web development. Mm-hmm. So I basically hung out a shingle, went to some local trade shows, set, uh, put up a website, said, "Hey, I can build your website." Very inexpensive, uh, and got flooded with a lot of small businesses uh, who wanted to me to do that service for them. And so that was the start to all of this. It was, yeah. And then I started hiring other University of Florida students to help me. By the time I graduated, I had eight students working for me. Uh, and we, so it, it, it was not actually what I intended my career to be. I was a, uh, I, I was going to go into broadcast news. Uh, but it, you know, it, the business opportunity was right there in front of me. Yeah. And so how, how did you make the transition from growing this in Gainesville to ultimately being headquartered in Atlanta? Yeah. So we, uh, we still have a big office in Gainesville. Uh, we still have over 30 people in our Gainesville office. Uh, we do a lot of our software development work for customers out of Gainesville. Um, but we saw, you know, obviously Gainesville is great from a talent perspective. There's a lot of great students coming out of the university. We have a great, a great talent retention there. Uh, but there's not obviously a big client base for us in Gainesville. And so we had always looked to other cities. We, we got a lot of our clients from Tampa. We got a lot of our clients from Orlando, South Florida, and we started getting clients from Atlanta. And I really felt like we need to grow more of a presence in Atlanta. So we actually put a couple, we put a salesperson up here in the mid 2000s and then slowly added additional people. But it was always a very, very small satellite operation in 2014. I made the decision that I really wanted to go all in on Atlanta. That's when we uh, opened up in the Biltmore building in Midtown, a much, much larger office. I moved up here from uh, Gainesville and we really started hiring and, and made this our headquarters. And, and, and let's, uh, we normally get into this a little bit later, but as I've said that, you know, part of the show is, is a little bit of a love letter to the uh, Atlanta business and technology community because I think we are unique. Um, and we do have interesting businesses and that's, that's for a reason, but it, it can be different reasons for different entrepreneurs and companies. So why have you found Atlanta besides the fact that we have all these big companies here and it's bigger and, uh, you know, you have more opportunities than Gainesville? 
why has this been a great place to have your HQ for the past, I guess, five years now? Well, for us in particular, uh, so we, our company works with a lot of enterprises. Atlanta has the second or third highest concentration of Fortune 500 headquarters in the U.S. A lot of people don't realize that, but this is a outstanding city if you're selling to enterprises or if you want to go work for an enterprise. It's an absolutely outstanding city with all of the different corporate headquarters that we have here in Atlanta. So that's good for us from a business development standpoint. Um, from a personal standpoint, I love startups. I've started a number of startups. And so uh, the startup community in Atlanta amazingly strong. I'm a mentor at Atlanta Tech Village. Um, I've been a mentor at Techstars in the past. I like to get involved with a lot of the, I've invested in, in uh, some of the startups here in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's another aspect of what Atlanta really has to offer. I mean, it's just a, such a thriving business community, all aspects from startup to midsize to the enterprise. Uh, yeah, very, very common refrain. Um, I think Atlanta is at a place where we're very much kind of firing at all cylinders at this point. Um, let, let's get back to the business. So what do people, when, when you go into a new client, okay, and they have this established marketing department, and obviously what you guys do is very different from that. What's the biggest misconception about what you do that is different from standard good old marketing? Well, so oftentimes we'll actually, our ideal way of working is to start with a client at the inception of an idea. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes these are companies that are trying to figure out their next revenue stream. They're trying to figure out new products to launch to market. So we'll actually, our innovation group will come in and help them in the early stages. We'll help them with market research, with product validation, with prototyping, uh, and, and help them conceptualize ideas. And we can even help kind of set up the innovation strategy behind why they're innovating to begin with and what their innovation goals are. Then we have, once an idea is, is crystallized and formalized, we have the digital development team that can help build out the digital components of the idea. Uh, and then we have the growth marketing team that can help, you know, get the idea into the marketplace and scale it. Um, I think that a lot of, so companies, <laughs> the bigger a company becomes, the worse they become in innovation. Uh, bar none, because companies are, is the natural inertia of a company that as it's growing to put in layers to protect the core business. You want to protect your core revenue. You want to make sure that what got you to where you are is safe and protected and will not fail. And that's when you start to get, you know, stringent IT requirements, risk management, compliance, your procurement department starts to build in all these layers of process and all this type of stuff. Process permeates throughout the company along with it, bureaucracy and red tape. Mm -hmm. And as a result, innovation becomes absolutely hundred times, thousand times more difficult than what it was in the earlier stages. So companies have a real challenge with that. Um, you know, we believe as an external partner that we can come in and help them navigate through that and help them short circuit some of their, you know, some of the internal pitfalls that they have with that. So it's, it's helping companies recognize what they need to do from an innovation strategy, how they can work within the frameworks of their organization, but actually get things done effectively and efficiently and innovate and, and get new things in the marketplace. And then once they're in the marketplace, be able to effectively scale them, which is another challenge um, of these, you know, brand marketing departments being able to scale new, new products. So you're, you're almost like an entrepreneurial mercenary for hire. I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And, and really it's interesting because you, you have somewhat, de- well, okay, makes sense, right? You started the business, but you have designed the perfect atmosphere for someone like you that has the entrepreneurial itch wants to start things. And so that is exactly what you're doing. Every yeah. day. You're going in and helping these organizations 
you know, figure out how to be their own entrepreneurs from the mouth of an entrepreneur. Yeah. So all of our employees from our innovation team to, and even our developers, like our digital development teams, they're very well suited for the development of brand new product. They have that entrepreneurial hunger. They have the itch to work on new things, very much agile, very much, um, you know, iterating based on what we're building based upon early stage customer feedback that we're getting. So it's, it's that startup, the startup mentality permeates throughout the entire company. Uh, and that's, that's really the value we offer mm-hmm. because a lot of larger companies don't have the degree of startup mentality that they need to be able to successfully launch new revenue streams. But I'd imagine that, that, um, that talent, that spark, it can be a little, and look, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but you sounds like you're looking for a very specific person because you need someone with that entrepreneurial drive and spark, but one that also understands what it is to be within the con bureaucratic confines of a larger company. And they have to be able to, I'd imagine, switch back and forth between those mindsets. And one, am I correct? Two, how do you find that person? Yeah, you are correct. So a lot of the folks we hire are either out of uh, big corporations or big consulting agencies, you know, mm-hmm. like an Accenture, you know, Deloitte, that type of agency that have, that are, that were entrepreneur, intrapreneurs within those organizations and have the itch to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, and they see the opportunity to join 352 as the opportunity for them to do something much more creative and much more entrepreneurial, but to build upon the experience that they had working in big corporations or big consulting. Got it. Um, and, and of course that another reason why Atlanta would be, uh, you know, a good backdrop for you because you have a lot of those large organizations and consulting firms from which to find talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about the emotional ups and downs of being an entrepreneur because I think that, look, we, we live in a day and age where the entrepreneur is a rock star. Okay. Um, and that's interesting, isn't it? I saw a study, yeah. I saw a study recently that said that on college campuses, the startup entrepreneur who starts the hot new app is more popular now than the starting quarterback of the college football team. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. And, and, and look, I wish I wish it was that way when I was in I know, college 25 years know, ago. Right? It wasn't that way. Trust me. Well, you know, being an entrepreneur used to, you know, mean um, you don't have a real job. You know, yeah. it, it used to be met with, um, yeah, I don't know about scorn, but some skepticism, mm-hmm. right? Now it's like, ooh, tell me about what you're doing. And, and, and certainly part of that is healthy. But I think what often doesn't get publicized is, and I think, look, this is anyone who you can be a entrepreneur of an organization, you can be a commission salesperson. There's lots of roles out there where there is these high um, emotional swings and it can be tough to level set yourself. And especially when you're running an organization and being the leader, how have you kind of trained yourself to be level when things could go very poorly or wonderfully? And, and you need to kind of stay grounded. Yeah. And you're a hundred percent right. Entrepreneurship is the ultimate, you know, swing. So I tell, I tell everybody, all the new entrepreneurs that I mentor at tech village and that type of thing. If you're doing well, it's two steps forward and one step back. That's when you're doing well, when you're doing poorly, it's one step forward and two steps back, or sometimes three steps back and no steps forward. But if you're doing well, it's two steps forward and one step back. It is almost never three steps forward and no steps back. Yeah. Almost never. And so whenever this setback occurs, which it's always going to occur, 
you just have to look at it in relation to other good things that have happened. And you have to say like, okay, so we lost that one. Uh, but did we have some recent wins? Like, are there some other good positive things that have happened to offset that one? That's the only way you can survive it. You have to recognize that, you know, the, the, it, yes, you're, you're going for the upwards growth curve, but it is a really, 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 really jagged curve. And so you have to look at the overall trajectory of where you're going. And are you going up overall, even though it's a heck of a jagged climb to get there? If you're going up overall, then you're going the right way and relax and calm down and appreciate the process and understand that that's part of it. Uh, because otherwise you're going to burn yourself out and drive yourself crazy. Have you found any way over years of working with entrepreneurs and of course doing it yourself to, um, it's almost like personality tests that are given before someone gets hired, right? Have you found a way to get enough insight into someone's uh, creativity, emotional stability, ability to execute where you can tell, let's call it within a couple of interactions, um, if this person, they might have fantastic ideas, but they should not be an entrepreneur and, and vice versa. Maybe they're not the most creative one in the room, but they can execute like crazy. That's a great question. I, I haven't studied that, but I'll tell you what my gut answer is on that. Um, my gut answer is, will somebody make a bet with you? Like if I, if I, if I had you in the room and I said, Hey, um, I'll bet you 200 bucks that you can't do this or, or even, Hey, I'll bet you 200 bucks on the football game this weekend. Like I think that entrepreneurs have a gambling mentality mm -hmm. within limits Within limits, obviously you have to be, you have to be smart about it. You can't get someone who's like, you know, uh, you know, is it borderline, you know, has to go get help for gambling addiction type personality. But entrepreneurs are gamblers. They're risk takers. And I, I do think, and, and they're competitive. And so like, if I could, if I could say like, Hey, 200 bucks, I bet you can't climb that tree in two minutes and someone wants to take that bet and give it a shot. They're probably going to be a pretty good entrepreneur. Interesting. All right, everyone out there, you heard it. That's that's the litmus test. So you go <laughs> try that the next time you uh, you're with someone who's got their own company. Um, look, I think everyone who comes on this show generally really likes what they do. Okay, well, because look, they're not going to come on here if they're not interesting and effusive of uh, you know what they do every day. Okay, but. Even those of us that really like what we do every day, there are extremely mundane parts about our job. There are parts of our jobs that we just downright don't like. And, and I'm curious from your point of view, you've been doing this again. Yes, you, you, you have side ventures, but in terms of your day to day, you know, this has been the bulk of what you have done. How do you keep yourself motivated, um, excited? You know, sometimes things can become a grind and sometimes things can become, um, just a little bit mundane. How do you kind of go out there and say, I'm, I'm excited for what's next. And, you know, this is what I think is going to be different about the next couple of years. Yeah. Three, five, two. That's a great question. And that's, that is a, that can be a challenge at times, you know? Um, for me, it is finding the aspect of whatever we're doing that provides that entrepreneurial spark. Like earlier this year, we redeveloped our website, our own company's website and our brand image and our messaging. And I was heavily involved in that project mm -hmm. because I, that it, the project meant a lot to me because it was the public facing look of our company. It was how we tell our story to people outside of the company. So I thought it was a very important project. 
but it also was a project that I was very excited about that I found, you know, entrepreneurial in nature, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to rethink our brand image and do these different things. So I think you have to fuel yourself by finding those, you know, pet projects, uh, that give you that, that, you know, moment of delight or that spirit to keep, to keep progressing. Got it. Makes sense. So for, for anyone listening to this that has an inkling that 352 might be useful to their organization, what would you say is your target, ideal type of client? And how would they get in touch with you if they wanted to learn more? Well, we actually do work with a pretty wide range. So we have some services that we can provide to startups. With startups, it's typically... With startups, it's typically funded startups, startups that have some type of funding behind them. But, but we, there have been a number of startups in town we've worked with and provide services for. Uh, and then certainly midsize and large companies. Um, we don't specialize by industry. We really instead, uh, remain very true to our own methodology. So we have our own methodologies by how we help, you know, by how we help at each stage from innovation to development to growth. We have our own approach. And so that's what we specialize in. And we found that the approach works really well across different company sizes and across different um, industries. So we'd certainly welcome the conversation. You know, our criteria is really companies that are looking to grow, that are looking to, you know, build, create, build and launch new things. Uh, that's really our criteria of who we want to work with. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly our website, 352.com and it's 352, the words are all spelled out, 352 spelled out.com. Tell us a little bit more about what we do and would love to uh, certainly talk with anyone who's interested. Fantastic. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Amon Bardwaj, president of Liberty Defense. All right. Hello, Joey. D disclaimer for everyone. We're about to get really uplifting with Amon. Okay. <laughs> and, you, and you'll see why that I'm slightly making a, a little bit of a joke here. No, but, but, but it actually is interesting because your technology, look, it's solving what is a terrible problem, but it, but it actually is, I would say, providing hope in a sometime what can be a little bit of a hopeless world, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, now that I've put that out there, let's talk a little bit about what Liberty Defense does. Okay. So Liberty Defense is in the business of, uh, creating concealed weapon detection technology. <clears throat> we are in the middle of product development right now. Uh, the technology actually originated in uh, MIT Lincoln Lab. And uh, we have licensed the technology, and now uh, we are taking the technology through product development to commercialize it. And we're a pre-revenue company right now. And, uh, you know, having a lot of good challenges and problem solving to bring this new capability to the market uh, for a growing problem. What are the methods now? I think most people, if you ask them, how now are people identifying um, threats on someone's actual person as they enter a venue, an office building, whatever it might be? Metal detector. Yeah. Okay. I mean, is, I mean is, is that the primary uh, use case of what's going on right now? Oh, that is correct. I mean, we've all gone through uh, metal detectors, and uh, there's definitely some useful uh, for metal detectors. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the problem is growing. And I think we all remember days when we can just walk up to the airport gates and drop off relatives and pick up relatives, and that environment has changed. Unfortunately, some of that is also – Coming into urban environments, uh, pretty much everywhere because of some of the crazy stuff that's happening. And, uh, metal detector technology is not sufficient for that. There's a lot of work being done, uh, not just by us, but a lot of other, uh, people in university level and also in private organizations where they're trying to bring new capability to improve the situation. And so a metal detector really only, I mean, it's, it's what its name is. It detects if you have metal in your pocket, but cannot identify that particular device. So there could be a false positive, you hold up the line, um, 
And with your technology, it is actually identifying the shape um, of a particular weapon, whether it's an explosive, whether it's a firearm. That is that is correct. Uh, metal detector, what, I, what we say is a, it gives you one-dimensional information. You know, it beeps if there's a metal. You don't know uh, what that metal is. Is it harmful? Or, you know, is it something that's not a threat? Um, the technology we're bring on, bringing on is a based on a short-range radar. So uh, we are actually transmitting a signal uh, towards your body. Uh, you get reflection back. We get a lot of data from that. And we're able to create a 3D imaging. So we know the shape of the weapon. We know the location of the weapon. And, um, you know, so some of this is very similar to what you see in the airport scanners. But at that time, you know, we're there pretty much a some TSA agent is looking at the images and determining. Um, and this is where, uh, you know, the AI comes in. Uh, we are actually training, uh, you know, using neural networks to identify what the weapon is and then be able to uh, uh, de- deliver an alert uh, to the security personnel or to the CONOPS, the concept of operations that facility might have. And so uh, I to let everyone know, I actually visited your office yesterday to understand a little bit more about the technology. And not only are you training your technology to recognize weapons, but the technology has to be trained to, let's say someone disassembles a firearm and has the different pieces on them or spread amongst different people. Your technology will actually be able to identify those component parts as well. That is correct. Um you know, uh, people who are trying to cause harm, they're also very creative. Uh, they're using their creatives in the wrong way. So they also uh, look for ways uh, where they can sneak in the weapons. And one of the ways is to disassemble the weapon and uh, bring it in pieces. And uh, and we're able to, uh, again, train for those pieces. You know, if you've got a... If you got a magazine of a weapon, you know, it looks a certain way and we're able to detect that also and then train our AI and we're able to predict that that's a, you know, potentially a threat. So look, the, I, 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 I want to talk about the genesis of this product and certainly part of the genesis is, well, just read the news. Um, but at what point does it go from read the news? There's a problem here to let's start a company to actually impact the world in a really great way and do something about this well you know the problem like i said is growing uh, and a lot of this technologies that uh, are coming out have been in the research for for a while so people have known about this technology the different technologies the problem has been some of the computing power that's needed to bring this technology some of the hardware needed to technology just wasn't feasible you know 10 10 15 years ago and uh, and also, you know, any innovation takes certain level of investment. It takes certain level of risk. And uh, a lot of the universities and government are putting a lot of money, along with the corporations and the private industry, uh, you know, putting in money into this problem. And I think that's what you're starting to see. Uh, what's coming out is new innovation to address this problem. I, I actually, I remember you um Threw a phrase out that I want to go back and touch upon, um, neural networks. Okay. This is a phrase that, um, often we hear associated with artificial intelligence. And I think the general public has a pretty good idea of what AI is. Um, I would imagine that it'd be helpful to have a, um, you know, layperson's definition of what neural networks are and then how they interact with artificial intelligence. Okay. Good question. Um, you know, I'll draw a parallel, uh, on how we all learn to recognize things. So uh, what 
you know, you, um, you have an object, you have uh, some characters of that object, and uh, we see that object again and again to, to learn what that object is. And uh, neural networks is pretty much offering that level of capability. Obviously, it's not as multidimensional as a human brain is, but uh, we do uh, take an image. Uh, we're able to train the machine to recognize certain features of that object through, through that image. And then uh, we give them a lot of test data and improve, you know, uh, the recognition of that object. And, and eventually what you start seeing is it starts recognizing the object with a very good certainty. And uh, as you, the object varies a little bit, it starts predicting it. And, um, and uh, there are some techniques out there. There are self-learning, but most of it really involves supervised learning. Basically, you're feeding them data till the machine starts recognizing. I mean, that's the fundamental thing in machine learning. Okay. And so you're, what the machines are learning are the shapes and components of different weapons. And so how are you actually feeding it that data? Yeah, that's a um, you know, fundamental problem. So people who are, you know, AI is a big buzzword right now. There's a lot of applications out there. Uh, data is, is the king for, for machine learning. And one of the problems we have is that the data that we need to train, we have to create it. Um, it's not readily available. There's not a huge database out there. We can just pull in images of person carrying an IED on their chest, right? And, uh, and we are spending a lot of effort uh, doing that in our labs here in Atlanta. We have also uh, partnered with uh, experts, like we have an ATF uh, expert who knows explosive IEDs and weapons really well, uh, uh, you know, making inert objects for us. And we are using that and different type of human bodies, different type of obscurance, bags, jackets, clothes. And we are actually creating a huge database to be able to uh, use that for training and testing. Um, you know, one, one thing that I find, and, and this somewhat goes back to the, the question that I asked Jeff about how do you, um, keep your emotions in check? Although in a very different application, you, you're spending your days really imagining disaster scenarios and imagining, um, the, the worst in human beings. And so, and, and of course you're doing this all to a good means, uh, to a good end. Um, but I'm curious, kind of, you know, at the end of the day, when you go home, ha- how are you keeping your emotions in check when this is the sort of subject matter that you're dealing with day in and day out? Well, the, the way we keep our emotions checked is we know how important it is. We all have families. We all have kids. And, <clears throat> and you, you know, you can imagine what happens to them and that motivates you to be able to stop that. My wife is a school teacher at Northview and my kids went through Northview and I remember the days where all the doors were open and students walked in exchanging classes freely. Now it's almost like a fortress. There's few doors open and you have to be checked in. And I was just in Florida uh, talking to the, uh, some of the stakeholders there and learned they're spending a lot of money researching how to keep schools safe. I mean, so you live this every day. Uh, yeah. it, it hasn't happened to you, um, but uh, it surely can happen to you. And you have to be very mindful of that. And that motivates you to solve this problem. It, it it is extremely jarring. I I, I have a two year old, so I haven't entered this stage of you know elementary school yet. But even just the security at preschool, um, it's I, I'm certainly glad it's there. But it's you sort of take you know you, you walk out and you take stock of things. You're like, how when, when did this happen? Correct. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, in in terms of the growth of the company, you guys 
have done something interesting to raise money. Um, a lot of people that I have on this show, you know, they go the, the venture route and we talk about, you know, this, the series A or B they've just raised. Um, you guys actually went public and you went public on the Canadian stock exchange. That is correct. Um, you know, we started the company with some seed funding for, uh, the founder group that was up in Vancouver, Canada. And, um, you know, within six months, uh, we went to, uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. There's a venture. Toronto Stock Exchange for early stage companies to be able to raise public money. Uh, we did that in March of uh, this year. And that's, that's been a good tool for us to get our story out to the investment community and, uh, you know, letting them know what we're doing and get them excited about what we're doing and, uh, you know, and getting the funding that we need to finish the product development and take it to market. And, and so that has been, a, it sounds like that's been a positive experience. I came and, of course, visited your office and you have a beautiful lab and testing facility and clearly, um, you know, you guys have staffed up pretty quickly in only about a year or so. No, that, that is correct. And, um, uh, you know, we're a startup. Uh, this product is needed in the market. And from the very beginning, the pressure was, okay, how soon can you get the product? Everybody likes the technology uh, that we've shown. And um, they want to have it in their hands as soon as possible. So there's always the pressure to, uh, you know, to bring the product uh, as soon as we can. And in order to do that, you have to have the right people. You know, people are pretty much the whole organization. And uh, you got to make sure you have the right people. Uh, we're dealing with a lot of complex technology all the way from radio frequency to uh, antennas to AI and all the smart technologies we need to be able to, con- uh, to communicate to connected uh, security devices. So you needed the right uh, capability, and that was my first focus in six months to make sure that we had the right capability and right partners to take this product to the market. And so, and speaking of taking the product to the market, let's talk about some of the use cases. Um, you know, you you guys are going to be beta testing this in the coming months, um, and if you can share, you know, I think it'd be interesting to understand kind of who who has had interest in this because it really is a wide array of organizations. No, that is correct. Um, um, the, the application of this technology is very broad. Uh, we are pretty much looking at all the verticals, all the way from sports and determined venues to all the way to the schools, uh, office infrastructures, uh, and the transportation infrastructures. So we have been, uh, talking to many organizations for multiple reasons. One, one reason is to, um, understand what the security, um, professionals need out there in different facilities. Obviously, uh, the bigger the facility, the more complex, the more technology they have. They have different needs than a, you know, small facility where they just have one security guard guarding the whole facility. Um, you know, as a startup, our approach was to make sure the product we're designing is a, is a platform. Uh, because we are a small, uh, startup. We don't want to be in a situation where we got to make a different skew or a different product for every little market because that will really limit our expansion. And uh, we've learned a lot talking to those people, uh, and uh, and they have really, really taken on into, into our concept. Uh, right now, we've already anna- announced uh, uh, beta testing with the uh, Maryland Sports Authority. Um, there is a uh, there is a temple uh, for for uh, religious purposes that we have also announced a collaboration for testing. Vancouver Canucks is the ice hockey team. Um, uh, FC Bayern up in Germany is a big soccer team that we'll be beta testing with. And we recently announced the Toronto Convention Center and the Toronto Airport for our testing. And 
over the next year, so okay, so testing is happening over the next year, and you know, at what point do you anticipate that this product actually, you know, goes live to the market? Yeah, we are we're projecting uh, Q4 of next year. Uh, we have uh, just now finished our alpha prototypes. We have finished a lot of the software and AI work. We're beta testing early part of the next year, and a lot of the learning from beta testing will be brought in and improve the product, and then launching it in the fourth quarter of next year. Okay. And if someone wants to, is listening to this and it spikes a nerve and, uh, you know, think that this could actually make sense for their organization, uh, how do they learn more about you? Well, you can uh, definitely go to our website. It's uh, libertydefense.com. Uh, and there's plenty of information. Uh, you can also sign up for our newsletters as we are making progress. We're communicating to the community. Uh, and uh, you can definitely call us uh, and we'll be happy to engage with you. Fantastic. Aman, thanks for coming on. You're doing great work. All right. Thank you. Okay. Robbie Galry, Proliant. Joey, how are you? Good. You've been waiting patiently over there. Oh, I'm learning a lot here, learning uh, from Jeff and Aman. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we try to make this uh, beneficial for the guests as well, right? Um, so you are at Proliant, and uh, you've, you've recently, in what, past six months, past 12 months? Uh, it's been, I started at the end of January, beginning of February. So it's been basically 2019. Okay. So, so how's the journey in the CMO role gone so far? Um, you know, so far it's going very well. You know, one of the things that I thought I could bring to the table at ProLiant was a little bit of that startup edge, a little bit of that modern sort of marketing approach. And, uh, you know, the ability to tell a story in a way that can be uh, easy to digest for not only our our internal sort of sales and uh, and marketing teams, but also for our prospects and our customers. So overall, I'd say the journey is going quite uh, quite well. Well, and and as Aman said, you know, people are the whole organization, and really, your organization's technology is completely focused around people. Absolutely. So give everyone a little bit of a a executive summary of what the technology does. Sure, sure, sure. So if you go to our website, you'll see sprinkled across as well as a lot of collateral and materials we put together, this notion of the people-first economy. And uh, if you really think about it, we live in a people-first economy. You know, when I uh, left uh, my undergrad studies at Georgia Tech, I ended up, uh, you know, in the workforce like a lot of us do. And it definitely was not a people-first economy. You know, you were lucky to have a job. You were lucky to hopefully get paid every couple of weeks. Uh, that's not the case these days. These days, employees drive a lot of the uh, HR sort of uh, practices and principles and the abilities for employers to execute on the things that the employees demand. And ultimately, that's what our software does. So we have what we call a suite of people tools that help employers not only you know find the right people to bring onto their companies, but also pay them you know, manage their performance management as well as any of the sort of uh, typical HR functions that you would normally associate with HR tools. Well, and, and you touched on something that I have seen as a trend as well. So uh, I'm glad you touched upon this people first economy because that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about mm -hmm. and, and how, how you're building that within ProLiant and sort of preaching that message to your clients. But why do you think that we've seen that change, that it didn't used to be a people first economy? Because organizations have always been comprised of people, okay? This right. has not changed. So why is there so much more focus on this now than ever? 
I think we could probably have a three-hour podcast or a radio show just on this topic alone. But I think at a high level, if you think about the next generation, you know, the millennials get, uh, you know, they, you know, they get labeled in certain ways. But millennials bring a lot of uh, interesting perspective to the workforce, and one of them is because of the fact that they've generally been in an environment that they're always connected. The expectations are very different. You know, the ability to get to your benefits, get to your, you know, payroll, get to your uh, anything that's related to you basically being employed, the expectation is very different now than it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago because of the mobile world, because of the interconnected world and because of the applications that allowed me to feed the data that, uh, you know, give me the ability to make decisions fairly quickly for me and, and my family. So the expectations is number one. And I think the other thing is the, uh, the, the notion of, easy to use and easy to digest technology. You know, uh, Jeff talked about website building and how that's kind of evolved and that's sort of happened in the HR space as well. The technology's evolved. The, the ability of data and the access to data has evolved as well as cloud computing has evolved at the same time. So it's like this perfect storm mm-hmm. that's uh, occurring to give people the, uh, you know, the expectation that just didn't have when, you know, when I started in the workplace. Interesting. I, I think those are on point. Um, you know, I've, I've certainly seen it in, in real estate as well. I think that a lot of the, you know, what, what used to be a decision of where to locate an office based upon, you know, where the CEO might have lived, um, is now much more focused on how do we drive people to this location? How do we make people be their most effective? Um, and look, ultimately these are, these are good trends all around, you know, whatever part of the organization is impacted by it. Um, the people first economy, how are you building that within ProLiant? Like if you look at Glassdoor, mm-hmm. if you look at, you know, the awards that your company has won, Inc. 5000, best places to work, right? And, you know, this is not just a fluke. This is years in a row. Clearly people enjoy working at ProLiant. Um, why? why? Why, why is it a great place to be? Free lunch and breakfast doesn't hurt, but uh, outside of that, what else is uh, there? <laughs> what else is there? No, in, in all seriousness, um, you know, if you think about again, going back to the notion of the people first economy, that can't be just a slogan or some hashtag that we use. We have to be reflective of that across our entire organization. So, you know, again, going back to the younger workforce, people demand. Uh, certain things. And one of those things they demand is career development. And again, these are things uh, that I'm saying that aren't necessarily, you know, cutting edge or, or innovative. They're just the, the, the act of basically making sure that you treat your employees and your, and your producers the right way. So making sure that we're using our own software to onboard them in a, in a effective and efficient way. I would hope so. Right. So when they start, uh, day one, they're productive day one. You yeah. know, they have a PC at their desks and they're able to actually produce from day one. So that's very simple, but it's amazing to me how many companies just can't get that right. Uh, number two is, uh, you know, basically making sure that the career development path is laid out fairly, uh, consistently for everybody across the organization. So you start in a role and then you have the opportunity to graduate into another role. So I spent a lot of time with our sales teams and there's a direct path from becoming a sort of a BDR, a business development rep mm-hmm. to a sales executive, to a district sales manager, to even a regional, uh, vice president. So there's this sort of clear path and we give them the tools and the training and the ability to really uh, kind of have a trajectory of what that path could look like. Obviously, compensation is a component of that, but it's not the only component of that. So we do, I think, a pretty good job of making sure that those sort of uh, aspects of the business are articulated in a very, again, digestible and a consumable way. Often uh, you hear marketing teams and sales teams talk down to people. 
uh, and and we try to make sure that that people first economy kind of mindset and that approach is talking to and being advisors and being consultative and listening before we talk. We actually do measure how many words we say versus what the prospect says uh, in any of our engagements. Huh. And if we're and if we're uh, you know at that where the sales member team is uh, 70, 80% of the 20, 30 minute conversation. Yeah. yeah, that's not a good approach. We want to listen. We want to understand. We want to do discovery the right way to be able to then feed that back into, you know, our assessment of the situation and then hopefully coming up with a problem, uh, a solution to that particular problem. I, I've actually never heard that before, but I mean, look, it is general consensus. If you talk to any sales or marketing um, executive that the prospect or client should be speaking more, um, but you actually measure the number of words that I've I've literally never heard of that being done. We 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 don't do that every time, of yeah. course. But we do that when we get permission to basically just assess how we're doing. You know, one of the things that we've laid out over the last six or seven months is where we really can make impact. And if we feel like early on in the conversation, if we can't make impact in the business, then we probably shouldn't be talking. Uh, why waste? Uh, the time of not only our teams, but our prospects as well, when we know that we probably can't solve their particular problems. So in order to really understand the impact that we're making, we have to understand, we have to listen, we have to really hear, and then basically map what we've heard to, uh, you know, to the solutions that we can provide. Well, and, and let's talk about those problems that would make, um, Proliance technology make an impact because look at the, at the end of the day, the type of solutions that we're talking about here, you know, these are generally necessary mission critical solutions for any, you know, HR department to have. It's not like you don't have competitors out there. Absolutely. And so I'm curious into the sales and marketing process of how you make what can sometimes be a bit of an unsexy topic exciting. And what those specific problems that you're solving that perhaps your competitors cannot? Yeah, yeah. We've laid out, you know, what, what we call the four A's. And I'll talk about three of those four in particular in terms of the impact that we make. Number one is what we call alignment. And this goes back to what I was saying about the people first economy is alignment between the employer and the employee, right? Making sure that the employee has consistent and constant feedback, making sure there's mentoring and coaching capability built into the platform so the, the workforce can understand how they're impacting that particular business. So there's a lot of software and solutions that we provide that help with that whole notion of alignment. Uh, onboarding is a component of that as well. Number two is access to data. Often we run into companies where um, they just don't have the appropriate data or they don't know how to get to the appropriate data. And once they do, they really don't know how to utilize that data to be able to make effective decisions in an insightful way. So a lot of our solutions are uh, consist of reporting, dashboarding, and easy ways to to really translate that data into something that's actionable because at the end of the day, most business managers, CEOs, uh, business owners, they don't have time to look through spreadsheets and, 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 and vast amounts of data. They need to be able to get to a decision fairly quickly. And then the third thing outside of alignment and access to data is this whole notion of um, sort of, um, you know, let me talk first actually about accountability. You know, accountability is is sort of the platform across the board, right? It's to make sure that from a pre-sales to a sales to an implementation to a service process, we're accountable the entire way. So we try to make sure that we're completely uh, sort of um, – you know, uh, aligned and, and automated and, and also, uh, basically, um, sort of consistent across the, you know, the message that we say. And then the last four is the notion of automation. Now, I've used that word a lot, but automation is we run into businesses that are using Excel 
using uh, integrated or non-integrated systems. Often they do manual key. Even in this day, we've talked a lot about innovation here this morning, but a lot of businesses are still trying to just survive. And mm-hmm. uh, we run into a lot of those sort of heart of America businesses where you know they're running you know Excel spreadsheets for pretty much every aspect of the process. And so where we feel like we can bring value is automating that to gain efficiencies, to eliminate uh, a lot of wastage in terms of what happens day to day. And those are the four A's. So how we um, sort of uh, translate that into uh, prospects as well as our internal sales teams is the again going back to alignment of those those four A's to the actual solutions that we bring. Okay, and, and you, you talked about a number of different types of organizations: those who are mature and those who are using spreadsheets. Um, can any is is this product for anyone from five person startup to Fortune one thousand? Our sweet spot is. If you're at 150 to 200 employees where you've got some federal requirements that you need to look through, uh, you've got IRS requirements, you've got EEOC requirements from an employee management standpoint, we're, we're a perfect fit. But we do have customers all over the board. We have close to 6,000 customers across the country. Uh, and we have, uh, businesses of all kinds, you know, restaurants, uh, uh, you know, franchise owners, all the way to, uh, sort of technology companies that are thousands and thousands of employees. So we expand the country. We, Atlanta is the headquarters, but we do have offices in, uh, 17 other cities outside of Atlanta. And those more, normally these are small kind of operational sales and, and, uh, you know, sort of business pr- uh, process sort of, uh, sort of offices. Mm-hmm. But Atlanta is, you know, the place that we kind of do most of our, uh, our strategy and, 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 you know, development of the business. Well, and let, let's talk about Atlanta. So what, why, why Atlanta? Why did it start here? Why has it been great to grow here? So, um, as I mentioned, I've been with the company for a, a little less than a year now. And uh, for me personally, Atlanta's, I think there's no better place in, in the country. I've been very fortunate to travel all over the country for work as well as for personal. And I think Atlanta has that perfect climate of, um, of, you know, the political scene, the investment scene, as well as the infrastructure scene. I know we get a lot of flack for traffic issues and whatnot, but I tell you, uh, from a pure infrastructure standpoint, there's a lot of technology, a lot of network, a lot of airport capability that a lot of cities just don't have. So I think Atlanta is a great place. And one of the things Jeff said earlier was uh, the fact that there are so many uh, large Fortune 100 companies here that have put the infrastructure in place for the rest of us to be able to really leverage and uh, and you know gain some uh, successes from I think is is I can't think of another city in the country that basically brings that kind of combination. We we definitely do check a lot of boxes. It it is hard for me to think of any other top 10 major metro that has the combination of all of these different um aspects that make this a really great place to be yeah and and you know the education scene is solid here too with georgia tech with georgia state with uga the terry school here right in buckhead uh we've got a lot of access to some really really interesting people and for us at proliant you know we're on the marta line right here in dunwoody literally we're half a mile from the studio and uh, we attract a lot of people who are even in midtown and, and downtown who can just jump on the marta and get right to the building without having to worry about you know, an hour and a half of uh, commute on, on 400 or whatever. Well, you know, transit is one of my uh, side passions and, yeah. uh, yeah, your, your, your building cannot be better located for that. Yeah. Um, when, when, when you and I met, you were still in the startup world. Yeah. And so I'm curious what you've taken from your experience, um, at a scrappy startup to a little bit more of an established organization. Yeah, you know, in the startup world, you kind of have to roll up your sleeves, uh, and, and as, as a head of marketing, head of strategy, head of messaging, head of brand, head of digital marketing, head of SEO, you have to kind of take on all those, 
uh, sort of responsibilities day to day and just try to execute the best that you can given the lack of resources or limited resources, resources that you have. And I think a lot of that energy and that passion I've been able to kind of bring from the uh, startup world into a more established company. You know, we still got some of the same challenges. You know, we're competing with some really big companies out there. Uh, but at the same time, we feel like if we can continue to build on a controlled growth path with the right story, with the right brand and the right personality, we can really make a huge impact. So a lot of that work that I did in my early career around, uh, you know, establishing a story around companies that didn't have a product or early stage companies, a lot of those sort of uh, learnings I've, I've brought into uh, this organization as well. Well, and, and the benefit of those learnings and the te- that technology, are, are you generally targeting a head of HR? Is it a business owner? Is it the CEO? I mean, for, for those listening to this, who, who's kind of the right audience for this technology? Yeah, you know, um, uh, as, as companies get bigger, they get more compartmentalized. And so depending on the size of the business first, you know, if you're a 200, 300 person company, you're generally going to have an HR department. So we do a very good job of targeting, you know, HR managers, HR directors and, and sort of CHROs, uh, heads of uh, HR. But the, the smaller that you are, you know, 20, 20 person company down the street, you're probably not going to have a dedicated HR person. You may have an individual that's doing a multitude of roles. And so we often target business owners at that point. So anybody who's really looking for uh, a comprehensive HR suite that sort of starts at applicant tracking and goes all the way to performance management and has a need for payroll in the middle, um, we're uh, we're a good company to talk to. Well, and clearly something is going well because cursory glance, you have like 30 job openings on your website. <laughs> we do. I think there's more coming, I believe. Well, so why why is that? I mean, what's what's happening is is this geographic need? Is this move into new verticals? What's what's the behind the growth? I think um, I think a lot of it is fundamental business. Um, you know, I think companies and and people have gotten tired of being automated to death. You know, I don't know how many emails I delete every morning from various companies trying to sell me uh, the things. Not to say that we don't do email automation. We leverage, you know, marketing automation platforms and various other things, but we do it in a very controlled way. And that's by design. We want to have real conversations. You know, our business model is very hub and spoke. We have the headquarters in Atlanta and then we have those offices out in the, in the different markets that we want to serve. And we have people there that know the product, that understand the company. Uh, and understand how we can bring again impact to those particular businesses. And I think that's refreshing for a lot of people. You know, we, we try not to bombard them with, uh, you know, um, you know, things that frankly, you know, people have gotten tired of. And I, those controlled growth kind of mechanisms really help us get doors open, have real conversations. And we're the first ones to push people away from actually buying something until they understand how to truly and effectively evaluate the buying decision process anyway. And I think people uh, appreciate that because they generally don't get that from other people. Well, it's uh, look, it, it's the right thing to do. But frankly, it also helps you long term because yeah. it is so unexpected that it really makes it stick out from the back. Absolutely. And Absolutely. you're gonna have a happier client long term. Yes, like I said, people first is not just a hashtag on our site. It's a people first economy, and in the people first economy, people expect to have to be treated like people. Yep. You know, this is not an automated uh, Marketo or Mailchimp uh, campaign that we run on a daily basis. This is something that we have to continue to live with and strive by. Sometimes the most refreshing thing, and what can be a big competitive differentiator, is that simple human conversation that I think we've lost a little bit. I, I think so. You know, one of the things that we're doing is uh, launching a um, our version of a daily pay product. You know, kind of going back to the gig economy and the and the notion of uh, of people 
then their expectations changing. It's kind of the Uber effect, right? People expect uh, to get paid regularly, more regularly than, than than we we have in our in our careers, and and with that, we are not trying to push down this notion of daily pay like as a, another product yet to sell. We're trying to really have a conversation, making sure they truly understand what they're trying to get into before they even um, approach this notion of daily pay. And just that approach of selling, I think, is very refreshing for a lot of people. Wonderful. Okay, so Robbie, anyone listening to this where it has struck a chord and they want to get in touch, how do they find out more about you and Proliant? Uh, Proliant.com, uh, the easiest way to, you know, basically check out what we're doing and, you know, the type of customers that we're serving. Reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. I'm very active and we're very active on LinkedIn. We're constantly posting things that are relevant, we think, to people who are running businesses and running HR organizations. So connect with me on LinkedIn and I'll be happy to spend some time and kind of walk you through what we're trying to do here. And to clarify, Proliant is spelled P-R-O-L-I-A-N-T. Right. And Robbie, your last name is spelled G-U-L-R-I. That is correct. Thank you, Joey. All right. Gentlemen, you've all been fantastic. Thanks a lot for making another uh, episode of Tech Talk. Fantastic. Have a great day. Thank Thank you. you.